Hello and welcome to There's No Business Like, a podcast where friends and industry colleagues explore topics and interview leaders in our industry of professional theatrical touring. Hello and welcome. Thanks for joining us for our very first episode. We're not sure exactly what we're doing yet, but we're really enjoying our conversations with all kinds of professionals. I'm Brian Zelmer from Kutztown University in Kutztown, Pennsylvania, and I'm here with Katie Miller. Katie, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Miller with the Midland Center for the Arts. And I'm also joined by Kevin Maynard. I'm Kevin Maynard. I'm the Executive Director of Quad City Arts. Josh Benson. I'm Josh Benson with the Marion Cultural and Civic Center. And Danielle Van Hook. Hey, I'm Danielle Van Hook. I am from the Alden, which is in McLean, Virginia. Um, have you been to the nation's capital? Uh, yes. So we're right outside of that in Virginia. We're all presenters, something called presenters in this industry, which means that we're essentially buyers of the performing arts, whether it's the artist, uh, individual artist, or the show, or the group, however you want to word it. Uh, we're known generally as presenters. We have all different titles in this industry, and so we're trying to learn about a lot of things. As presenters, we we don't always think about the other side of it. We take it from our approach. And so we, we reached out, and our first interview today is Gail Boyd, and she was really awesome to talk to. I, I enjoyed that so much, um, and you'll hear that in a minute. But I just have a quick question because something she brought up made me wonder, have you any of you ever snuck into a show because I have. My wife was a ballet dancer. We were living in Denver at the time. She was dancing with Colorado Ballet. And she it was nutcracker season. She was doing like a million nutcrackers in the Denver Center for Performing Arts. And there's like seven major venues. It's like Lincoln Center in New York City, if you're not familiar with it. It's got all these major venues all right in the same area. Anyway, so she was performing in Nutcracker. I've already watched her like five times this season um, because, you know, I can get free tickets. But then during intermission, I was like... Rent is next door in town on tour. I'm going to go see. And I, they happened to be on intermission. I saw all the people standing out there. And they, I heard the doom, doom, doom. The show was about to start. And I just followed the crowd in. And I figured it was a safer bet to go up to the balcony. So I did. And there were seats everywhere. It was amazing. Um, and I got to watch the second half of Rent, uh, which was like my hundredth time seeing it. But I love that show. So I'm just curious. Do you guys ever sneak in? No because I'm too terrified of that. Literally listening to you, I would be so afraid of getting caught. I could feel my heart racing. It was the first time I, it was racing. I was terrified. And it's wrong now that I'm a presenter. I'm like, wait a minute. I should have paid for that show. But I'm too much of a rule follower, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's also terrifying, Kevin. I I have never done that. I've As a presenter, I sneak into the back of my own shows all the time. <laughs> I don't think that um, counts. <laughs> <laughs> and get to see a whole variety of things, right, as, right. In, as we all do in our line of work. But... Yeah, I I'm too much of a goody two shoes to do that. I used to if I if I saw that a loading door was open at the back of a show, I'd always just walk in. That's very fitting. Yeah, I'm, right, I'm surprised. feeling guilty now. <laughs> and Danielle, and if, have you, you? if you go, if you're just confident about it, they typically don't notice. So to well, be clear, we're not ago. condoning. We're not <laughs> condoning. <laughs> this was a long time ago before yes. security measures and and things like that with a lot of shows. So, I mean, this is probably not probably this is 25 years ago that this was happening. So. So I appreciate being the tiebreaker in this because we've got two wild and loose ticket purchasers, <laughs> two absolute rule followers. <laughs> and yes, I'm a rule follower. So I'm not sure if I should redact what I just said and take that out because now, I don't know, maybe I'll, I'll send some money to DCPA for my ticket that I never purchased. Anyway, Gail snuck into a show, but for, I think, a much better reason. <laughs> and 
and it changed her life. And so why don't we just take a listen to my conversation with Gail and you'll see what I mean. I'm Gail Boyd. I am president of Gail Boyd Artist Management, which is a boutique um, management company representing jazz and dance artists. I'm also president of the North American Performing Arts Managers and Agents. Um, I've been serving in that role for three years now. My term ends in January. I'm also co-founder of Vanguard Arts, which is an arts consulting company. Um, and I think there's one more thing, but I can't think of it right now. I've got a lot going on. That's great. That's a lot. I mean, those are all each big things to, to manage. So in the industry, we kind of um, tend to group people like presenters, agents, artists, uh, managers, consultants. Um, which which of those hats do you put yourself in, under? Manager and consultant at this point. Do you mind just... Um, to maybe help shed a little bit of light for people who don't know what those mean. Can you just maybe in your words describe what a manager is as well as what a consultant is in the performing arts industry? Okay, I'll be happy to. Now, as a manager, it's very different in certain genres. I work in jazz, um, and there are very few people who are managers who also book. They're not agents. So an agent is someone who gets a percentage for booking their client with presenters, um, and that's kind of all they do. That's their main job is to get the person a, a, a gig, a performance someplace, and they get their percentage and the artist gets paid. The manager is sort of all-encompassing in that one of my primary jobs is to get an agent for, the, for my client. Um, another one, though, because I'm in jazz, is to work on how are we going to record? Are we going to go with a record company? Are we going to self-produce? Um, are we going to try to do something that's a hybrid and license? So that's part of my job. Another part of the job of a manager is to work with marketing. And so it's, it's all encompassing. I mean, I am responsible for hiring the publicist, the marketing, the online marketing, whatever else the artist needs including an agent. And so would you consider the consultant part something different than that or included in what Absolutely. So um, another manager, Karen Kennedy, and I decided that we couldn't take on any more clients. I have 12 clients that I manage, and she has a roster full. But there are people who call us sometimes, and all they need are just specific help. Somebody might call us and say, I'm putting out a new album and I just need to know what the steps are to get it released. They don't need full management. They're self-managed, but they will hire us to walk them through the process. Um, we've also done some work with arts agencies. So um, diversity, inclusion, and equity is something that's really important right now, and we do a training course on that. Uh, we also do leadership training. So it's a lot of things that consultants do that really don't have much to do with management. Now, before we get back to the present day and what you're doing now, um, do you mind just giving us a little bit of, of your background? Because I know you have a law degree yes. and I know uh, you, I'm guessing, followed a different career path at one point. Can you just kind of describe how you came to where you are today? I'd be happy to. Um, if I, you know, we don't have enough time for me to go back as far as we could, but I would say that since I was 15 years old, I knew that I wanted to be a lawyer and I knew I wanted to be a lawyer in music and I knew I wanted to be a lawyer in music, specifically in jazz. So I actually have not changed very much from when I was 15. Um, I went to DePaul College and law school. And right after that, I moved to New York and started trying to get in, involved in the arts community. Music 
was a little bit later. I started working in music in 1979, but I did fine arts and I did dance and I did all sorts of other things until I finally found my home in jazz. So I've been doing that. I moved to New York in 1975 and I've been working as a lawyer until 1994 when I sort of stopped practicing law full time and started managing artists full time. I was already doing a bit of both. Um, and my husband always says that I made the best economic decision. I stopped practicing law and I started managing jazz artists. <laughs> I have two follow-up questions from everything you just said. Um, so you've mentioned how you knew from 15 that you not only wanted to practice law, but to specifically cover jazz yes. artists. So when did jazz enter your life? What was the spark that... Well, jazz entered my life when I was like seven years old. My father was a DJ in Chicago in the nightclubs, not on radio. And he, his, his name was QT the Blues Fool. And he loved blues and he loved jazz. And my mother and father were divorced. So when I was with my father, all he would know how to do was talk to me about what he was doing, which was jazz. So um, I already kind of knew. But at 15, he had been talking about the John Coltrane Quartet and how that was the quintessential quartet. There was no quartet better than that. And they told me, he told me that they were going to be in town in Chicago. So I told my father I was going home and I told my mother I was going to stay with my father. So that gave me a little leeway there. And I went to the jazz club and I asked the owner if I could hear the John Coltrane Quartet. And he said, well, how old are you? And I said, 15. He's like, I can't let you in here. <laughs> and I said, I don't want to drink. I just want to hear the best quartet there is ever. And he said, okay, if you come back after the club opens, I'll let you sit on the stairs and wow. you can watch the show. That is amazing. And John Coltrane turned me on in a way that I said, this is me. I have to do this and I have to work for artists and I have to work in jazz. Incredible. That's incredible. Um, so no, let's fast forward. You, you were talking about how you're practicing law and then you decided to to peel away to just be a full time uh, manager. Yes. Because you were already uh, managing. Some, I was some already artists. I was so already I want to back up a little bit. How did that first that first artist manage? Did they come to you and say, hey, Gail, I, yeah. I, I really need a manager or did you decide you wanted to try it? How did that happen? So I had a, a friend who was managing reggae artists and she asked me to work with her and I did for a short time just to sort of get the feel of what it was like to manage. So it, and that company was called One Under the Sun. Um, and so I got my feet wet a little bit, but you know, jazz was my thing. But I was still practicing law and Vanessa Rubin, who is a really great vocalist even now she's still working she came to me to negotiate her management contract and her recording deal so I, I negotiated her recording deal and as i was looking at the management contract i was like oh wow this is horrible this person wants 50 percent of your income literally 50 percent and i said nobody should should pay now colonel sanders did with elvis presley a lot of people don't know that but he got 50 percent of everything that elvis presley ever earned but i said outside of colonel sanders that's not industry standard and she said to me then why don't you manage me and i thought about it for a minute and i said okay <laughs> so that's why i was still practicing law and managing because she came to me as a lawyer and i was still taking on clients but i got bit by that bug and I was going to say, it must have been a great experience because you then took on new artists. Now, did you approach 
artists after that saying, I really like this? Or did they continue coming Most to you? artists come to me. And I, I was Betty Carter's lawyer, who is a pretty famous jazz artist. I was her lawyer. And she was actually the one who told me, even in 1983, when I told her, I said, well, I just keep looking at your contracts. And then you go off and have all the fun. And she said, well, what you want to do then is management. You don't want to be a lawyer. And so it, it, it kind of got buried inside my head that at some point I would do wow. that. So as a manager, let's let's fast forward. Um, you were talking about how you oversee recording, and I'm sure there's certain things you help with um, booking support artists or other things, or, or does the artist take care of that? No, most of the time I also serve as the production coordinator for my clients. It's very rare for us to do a, a recording, and I just sit back and let them go into the studio. Usually I'm pretty involved. And I'm saying that because I have one client now who completely has cut me out of the recording aspect of it and the photo shoot because she wants me to see the finished product. She doesn't want me. And, and it's the first time that's happened, but most of the time I'm in the studio and I'm production coordinator. I'm hiring the side men. I'm, I'm hiring the studio. I'm, doing, I'm hiring the engineer. So your first times doing that, how did you learn uh, did, did you know people? Did you just kind of try? I did. As a lawyer, I did kind of know the people in the industry. And I also knew what studios a lot of the people were using. And so I started out pretty green at first, but it doesn't take long. It really only takes one or two times before you start to figure out which of the studios that give you the best rate and who the engineers who really pay the right kind of attention and who's the mixing engineer and the mastering. And, you know, it didn't take me too long. That's great. I know I've learned a lot along the way from the mistakes I've made early on. Uh, I'm just curious what mistakes maybe that, that helped you learn and grow. Well, in terms of the recording, I can't say that I made any because a lot of the times there were record companies involved. And so even though I might be responsible for getting the people, if there were a mistake that was made, they would tell me right away and they'd say, no, this person isn't a good person to be the engineer, things like that. So after a few of those, then by now, most of my clients are actually recording themselves. They're not going through record companies. And now I feel like I've got it you know, down pat and I don't make that many errors. I've made mistakes as a manager though now. Early on, I learned not to pretend I don't make mistakes because that actually doesn't help me, but to acknowledge That's right. them. Yeah. And, and one of the things that I do as a manager, if I do make a mistake, I am really fast to tell my client that I did it, what I did wrong, and how I should have done it differently and how I will do it in the future. And that helps the client feel comfortable with you because you're not trying to cover up a mistake. You're actually saying, and I made a doozy once with a client where I, I actually left off two people on, in a quintet on a cruise. <laughs> and I had to get them down to the bottom of Mexico in like two days to join the cruise. And that's like, I think till this day, that's the worst mistake I ever made. And it cost me an arm and a leg to pay for their flights and all that to get them on that cruise. But I think that's good, man not only management and leadership, but it's also it shows integrity. That's how I'd like to think of it. I mean, I like to think of being able to have the client trust that when I say something, it's real. And if, if it was a mistake, I can apologize for it. So working in the industry, um, I'm just curious at this point, looking back, what do you consider the biggest challenges you faced and what have, what's been the most rewarding? Absolutely the most rewarding for me. I'm going to start with that instead of the challenges. The most rewarding for me is being a part of something and then sitting back and watching it unfold. You know, if I'm working with you, for example, as a presenter and you bring somebody to this hall and, and to actually sit in the audience 
and see it happen. And the, and the artist rarely knows all of the exchanges that have gone on between the manager and the presenter. And so they, when they come and they unfold their art, it's just really enjoyable for me. I mean, right now to this day, it's one of my best things. Some of the challenges are sometimes, I'm in, I'm in niche markets. I do dance and I do, I do one client who does dance and the rest of my clients are jazz. And so they don't make the kind of income that we would like for them to make. And so it's always a challenge to try to get a tour. I have a tour that's going out Friday. Um, and the money is not what I would like to see it be because A, the euro and the dollar just evened up. So I just lost like 20% of the money for the tour. And then the flights went up 40%. And so if you're dealing with a small margin anyway, you, you're sending people out sometimes making less than they would make if they stayed home. Speaking of the business of, sh of show business, if we can get a little bit into the sure. behind the curtain look, if you will. Um, I've kind of noticed that going to all the conferences and everything, there seems to be two primary, it's not just two ways of doing it, but two primary ways of conducting business in this, this industry. Seems like, in my opinion, transactional or relationship building. Yes. And some people do a blend of each. I'm just curious what your, what method you subscribe to or what, you know, mix. There, there is definitely a mix. Um, I remember I've been a member of APAP, for example, since 1991. And I ha had my first booth probably in 1992. And nothing happened. I was just standing there with my nice little booth and people would pass by. They didn't know me from a can of paint and I didn't know them. And I didn't know how to make the exchange. But finally, one guy came by and he looked up and he saw my booth and he said, I don't do jazz, but you know, he gave me his name and we shook hands. And I said to him, am I doing something wrong? Because I've been here for two days, nobody has stopped by. And he said, no, but you're new at this, aren't you? And I said, yes. He said, it's gonna take you three years. And if you just keep coming back and having a booth and you keep meeting people and sending out your information, somebody's gonna stop. And when one person stops, then they're gonna say, oh, that person stopped at your booth. Maybe it's worth stopping. And sure enough, that really is kind of what happened. I, I don't think transactional is a bad word like some people do because you are buying as a presenter. I am selling as, an, as a, a manager. And it really is about relationships on the one hand, but on the other hand, if all we're gonna do is chit chat and have coffee, neither one of us will accomplish what we want. So at some point I wanna say, I've got some great people, I've got great artists, here they are and here's what they can do and here's what it would charge. And you can say, well, my budget will only allow this and then we can talk about whether we can make that work. That's transactional. Now, I do wanna meet you and get to talk to you and eventually with sometimes I'll sit and have a glass of wine or have a meal, but that's not, I don't go into it because that feels phony too, to just walk up to presenters and say, hi, I'd like to have a glass of wine with you. They know what I want. And so, you know, I think the combination works. We get to know each other and then you say to me, Gail, who you got? I got this kind of a thing available and I can tell you who I have. And it's a mixture. Definitely, and so that kind of leads us into um, conferences. We mentioned APAP, the Association of Performing Arts Professionals, yes. uh, a couple times. There's many other uh, consortiums and yes. and other regional meetups and whatnot. Can you maybe just explain or talk a little bit about the ones that you've attended and and if there's differences or nuances about, uh, between them or reasons why someone who is a manager or a consultant would want to choose one of these? Oh, absolutely. And I'm happy to say that I just joined the board of the new Midwest regional conference, which is um, 
Max Midwest Arts Exchange Expo. Um, and that's taking the place of Arts Midwest, which I had attended, um, and I like it, and it's really good. It handles the Midwestern states primarily, but also there are people who will come to it. Agents and managers will come from all over, you know, because they want their artists to be prompt to perform in the Midwest. I've been to Ohio presenters, um, and that's been good. I mean, it's good because it's small, and you do have a chance to really chat for a long time with a lot of presenters. And WA, I've been going to since 1996, I believe. Western, and I have, to, WA is the Western Arts, and I think that might be my favorite um, regional conference. Um, they write, they really try to keep it so that the it feels less transactional because they have tabletops, basically, instead of the booths, you know. And so it feels a little bit less transactional, but. I have had a booth there, but I also find that it's just as well. They they do set aside meeting spaces, and sometimes there are a lot of presenters who would just rather meet you off outside of the exhibit hall. So I like why I like I like them all, and I think that each one is different in certain respects, but they all lead up to APAP to me. They're like the feeder for APAP. You meet somebody in Arts Midwest and they often will say to you, well, we'll, we'll finalize this when we see you in January. That, that happens a lot. Great. Now, you've already shared some advice that you got about how it takes about three years of yes. just keep, keeping going. And um, what would, I don't know if that is still the case today, if a new brand I don't new... know if that's the case today. But one thing I will say that one thing that new managers and new agents absolutely should not do is send out their materials to every single presenter in the book. It's really important that you, that you call the list, take some time and see who it is you're sending your material to. I do jazz. If, I'm, if I know you're a presenter who only has a 5,000 seat room, I know that I have nobody on my roster who could fit that room. I'm not gonna send you material. It's a waste of your time to have to go through it and it's a waste of my time. So I think the really important thing is the research. Look and see what presenters present and then see what it is you have and then target it. And then when you target it, you'll, you'll get more attention from those presenters. And then ask them individually, send an email and say, I'm gonna be at this conference. I noticed that you, you have registered for it. This is who I have. It seems to fit what you do. Could I take a meeting with you? And I, I have gotten meetings that way without knowing the people. And then we get to know each other. And then it becomes more relational after a while. For new uh, managers starting out or people thinking about doing that, um, there's also other organizations that can help them if they join things. We mentioned NAPAMA. Napama is excellent for people who want to get. In fact, we have artists, self-represented. We have agents, we have managers, and we have presenters who are not only members but on our board. And part of the reason is that that not too long ago, I've been president for three years, but a little bit even before that, we started recognizing that this really is an ecosystem. And you know, you don't want to sit in a vacuum as agents and managers and just make all the decisions about what should be happening. And then it turns out that it doesn't work for presenters or it doesn't work for self-represented artists. So we really make a, a, a plan to have presenters on our board, not just as members, but on our board. We make a plan to have self-repped artists. There are a lot of artists who don't have managers, and they don't have managers not because they can't find one. They really just want to represent themselves. It's a growing part of our industry, and so we always have that on our board as well. 
So if you come in, we have weekly webinars where we talk about the industry and where we talk about what to do, what not to do. Um, we're working with the regional conferences and with APAP to make sure that all of their registra registrations look the same so that we cannot spam you because you're giving us the same information. You're telling us what size your venue is. You're telling us what kinds of music or dance or art that you present. And then we can then tell our people, don't send to people who don't have things that you do. So it, it's a great training ground. You talked a little bit about Max uh, coming out next yes. year as a new uh, meetup in the, in the Midwest. Um, I'm sure this pandemic has shaken us up in a lot of ways, uh, all industries, but particularly the performing arts industry. Oh, yes. And one of the things that I'm hearing a lot now that I heard a little bit about before the pandemic, but is, seems to really be coming to the front, are, are people, agents, and, and even presenters talking about maybe there's not a need to go to a conference. Now, I'm not putting myself in that camp. I I can't wait to get to OAPN this year and, and APAP and so on. But I ha I'm hearing a lot more people that never I never would have suspected to be in that camp talking about, oh, well, now with this new world, they can do a lot of the things on Zoom. A lot of the uh, a lot of people are showcasing, like able to look at YouTube and, and see showcases that way instead of in person. So I'm just curious, do you see that as a big challenge for I see it as a bit of a challenge, but I do dance and I do jazz. You are not going to get the same feel if you don't get a chance to actually see them. Um, because first of all, in jazz, they feed off the audience. In dance, it's very hard because it, it feels very one-dimensional. But if you can, even if you see 15 minutes of some of the pe things that my client does, you instantly want to have her. But if it just feels a little less um, personal. And I've heard that. I've heard presenters say, oh, I'm just going to look at the showcases. They don't. They don't come as much. I've done virtual showcases for the last two years. They don't. They don't. They don't sign in. They call who they already know, and they, they fill their books with what they already have. Um, and this last time, because we've had the pandemic, they were busy rescheduling things that were canceled. So I understand that. But I think everybody's going to long for that that meet and greet and the the relational part you're talking about. They, they The transactional part is going to come along with it. But they want to be with other people in the industry. You just said, you can't wait. I can't wait. I'm, I'm going to OAPN. I'm going to WAB. I'm going to APAP. Um, and I can't wait to see people I haven't seen in three years in person. The other part of the pandemic's uh, impact has been a lot of change within the industry. Yes. There's been some of our, our major um, agencies have been shaken up or, or closed. Some of our very small boutique ones couldn't last and either merged with others or, or just went away. And there's a lot of new people in roles that never did this before the pandemic. And what you just said a moment ago about a lot of presenters are going back to people they already know and, and doing business that way, I imagine that's a big challenge. I mean, it's always been a challenge for new people to enter the industry, but I'm sure that's an even a more heightened challenge it's a now. a huge that... challenge. Um, and I don't know the answer for it because um, there are still presenters who I would love to know my roster that I haven't figured out how to, to get them to take I don't mean to take it seriously because I don't mean that they're not taking it seriously. But there are presenters who feel very comfortable with the kinds of artists they've already had. And it's breaking through that to say this artist would fit your venue 
very well. Some of it's educational. I mean, you have to talk to them about um, community engagement, maybe. It, they might think that they don't have in their community the kind of people who would come to the venue to see your show. And so then you have to talk to them about the other things that your artists can do. They can do master classes, workshops. We can go into the community and, and go to community organizations. My dance artists did that many times. We would do youth performances and we would do it in the day and we would not allow adults to come in. And so, because there was always a, a talk back and an interactive talk back as part of her show. And so she was always curious to know what young people thought about it. And that actually got a lot of presenters interested because they said, oh, you mean I can invite public schools to come here in the daytime and see a show for free? Yeah, you can. So it just requires a little creativity. We're almost done, but I just want to um, to take you into a time machine real quick. Okay. And you'll have a few minutes. We're going to go back in time and visit the 15-year-old Gail who's going to that concert. And um, maybe we meet her right after she's attended that concert and got the bug about jazz. What advice do you want to impart to her? I probably would say, and this sounds crazy, I probably would say you don't have to go to law school, Gail. But maybe you could just take some business courses to do what it is you really love. The law led you to it. But at the 15 year, if I could go back and tell her, I'd say you're going to get more joy out of just working with artists than you do representing them as a lawyer. So skip that part. Wow. <laughs> is there any other wisdom or something that you'd like to impart to the new colleagues that we haven't touched on or talked about? I, you covered so much. You know? Oh, thank you so much. But one of the things that I always like to say to um, people, and, and you know, it's not new with me, but follow your bliss. Because right now, I'll be 75 years old in August, and I don't feel like I've worked for the last 30 years. I mean, I really feel like the, the day I stopped practicing law full time, I retired and it's been fun ever since then. And that's because I feel like managing artists is what I'm meant to do. Find what it is you're meant to do and then do it at all costs. Do it at no matter the sacrifice. Do it even if you don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. It's there, but you just have to put the work in and you'll and then if, if it feels like work, you're not doing it right. You know, find what it feels like when it's not That's work. fantastic. What do you like most about working in the industry today? I am someone who actually loves the creation. I'm not a creator in that regard, but I love art. I love dance. I love classical music. It's not just jazz. I love all kinds of things. And so the thing I like about being in the industry is the art of discovery. Like I'm still, I will, I will go and see somebody who just completely blows me away. And I've been managing artists now since 1992, off and on, 94, part full time. But I walked up to a client two years ago and said, can I manage you? Because you just blew me away. I just enjoyed your show so much. I want to be a part of it. I don't think I said, could I manage you? I said, who's your manager? And he said, you? <laughs> and we've been together ever since. But what that artist did and what the audience response was did something for me. And I was like, that's why I do this. This is just beautiful. I loved speaking with you today, Gail. Thank you so much. Thank it's, you. It's such a pleasure to hear these stories. And hopefully we have something to impart to uh, the oh, next generation. Oh, I hope so. Thank you so much for inviting me. That was awesome. 
Gail's take on how to care for your clients is what should really be the standard in the industry. Yeah, I think what I really appreciate about her was just the candor. I mean, the, everything that she shared and just her honesty about her approach and her style of business. If a mistake happens, own it immediately, share it immediately, be honest with it so that your client still feels taken care of even if you make a mistake. I think it's a great lesson just for all sides of that business. I mean, understanding that you will make mistakes and you have to own up to it to, you know, just continue to be able to move forward. There is such a pressure, I feel, in our industry to be perfect all the time Mm -hmm. and really be on your game, on point, do everything perfectly. And like you said, her candor about owning up to it and being very transparent with her clients was really refreshing to hear. And I feel like gives permission to the rest of us to be human in our work. Her answer to whether she wanted to, uh, tell herself about being a lawyer, like she maybe not go into law, like that really was shocking to me. And it's so telling because she said she hasn't worked since she stopped practicing law. You know, like she has that spirit and that passion because Find she's not bliss. working. That's what she said, yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's just, we got to carry that, right? The experience that kicked off that passion is so cool in amongst itself. You know, sneaking into a jazz club at 15 to see John Coltrane. I mean, that's just incredible. Yeah. What a cool life. I mean, and to be able to have that sort of experience at that age and really to have that, honestly, shape the rest of your life like that. And we all know Gail because she's such a leader in the industry and such a mentor to so many people. The way she gives back and the way she's formed, you know, a lot of things with the present day Napama as president is just incredible and and so giving. And it's just to me, I want to I'm inspired to kind of follow those footsteps and try to do that too. Yeah. So I'll, I'll share a little secret. I've actually, the only interaction I've had with Gail was just reading her name and just seeing all the things that she's been involved with. So this interview was really my first introduction to Gail, but it made me want to just go talk to her and just honestly to do business with her just because of her approach and the way that she, you know, talks about the industry. So I, I enjoyed it because I felt like I, I I met someone new. And the, the beauty of that is that as a person in a one-on-one conversation, she's so engaged in in you and she's there and she's present and she's warm and welcoming and you feel like you can talk to her about anything. Except and, I have to disagree with her. I would love if a, an agent came up to me like, hey, would you like to have a glass of wine? Because I'm always like, yes. <laughs> 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 but yeah, I know what she means. It is obviously there's a reason they're asking you because we're trying to do business and that's that's yeah. the yeah. bottom line. Yeah, speaking of that, I like the way that you framed the the approach to transactional and the relationship building, um, because I think she's right that, you know, it does sort of get a, you know, a, like a bad name, that transactional yeah, approach, but yeah. that relationship has to start out of something. So I was, I really, yeah, mm-hmm. I just liked it. Well, I asked that because when I was brandy new and I went to my first conference, I was 100% pure transactional, you know, a Josh and I have had conversations about this, how, you know, and I felt the same way he did. Like, it's very advert. Adversarial, yeah. Thank you. And, you know, you go there thinking it's us against them and that they're all, like, after you and you got to fight for the best deal. And it's not. Like, then I then I evolved and learned it's, it's actually about the long game, about developing the relationships and the transaction. But I started to go too far the other way, and Gail kind of um, brought me back in with that mm-hmm. thinking. Well, and what is the best deal? Is it the best deal for here right now, or is it the best deal that we're all still here in yes. 10 years, right? Yeah. Do we need to nickel and dime every single transaction, or are we really here to get to know each other and to play the long game and to maybe actually exist together in the future? We're not just we're trying to— We're in ecology, to... exactly. Yes, yes. exactly. But those early days I was talking about, that's how it was. 
you know, you think, oh, I've got to do the best deal I can get. I got to get a bargain. I got to, you know, undercut them the best I can for my organization. But yeah, you're right. That's, that's not yeah, we're good not for buying the a industry. House. <laughs> yeah. I feel like your conversation with Gail really embodied her almost heart for service, right? Service to the field. Um, so service for her artists, service for other you know agents through her work with Napama, service to the art itself, like finding a way to help these jazz artists that maybe have the toughest time in our industry getting gigs and, and building their careers because jazz is just one of those very niche art forms. I really feel like she has a heart for service for people. And that's really what we're trying to do as an industry is serve our patrons, serve the people in our communities. And I really feel like your conversation embodied that and her perspective on things embodied that. She's amazing. I just want to thank Gail for taking the time to speak with me. And I think not many people are going to not be able to recognize her from a can of paint. But <laughs> I love that term, by the way. That was the first time I heard that. Thank you, Gail. But yes, yeah, seriously, thank you, Gail. This was a lot of great information. And I don't know what else to say. I'm just in awe and, and inspired by you. So... Well, that's it for today's episode of There's No Business Like. The hosts and producers of this show are Brian Zelmer, Josh Benson, Kevin Maynard, Katie Miller, and me, Danielle Van Hook. The opinions expressed here are our own and are not reflective of the organizations that we are a part of. There's no one in here, right? (laughs) 